Today we're going to be in one of the, uh, at least I want to start in what I feel like is one of the most important and underused parts of the Bible. It's there. We almost always just ignore it. We don't work through it like we should. We don't familiarize ourselves with it. So I just want us to take a quick look at it today. It is the table of contents, right? The table of contents. Most of us, we, we get familiar with the books of the Bible and then we, we don't ever use the table of contents. So sort of like in church circles, we're kind of embarrassed if we want to look at the table of contents. And so I don't want you to be embarrassed. We're going to be in Hosea. Hosea is how we would say it in Kentucky. I'm not exactly sure how you would pronounce it yourself, but uh, Hosea. And um, to save any of us the embarrassment of flipping for the next 10 minutes, trying to locate the little book of Hosea in the back, you can look in your table of contents. If you're using my Bible, it's page 751. But Hosea's, you get uh, Psalms and Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, keep going, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then Hosea's right after, right after Daniel in there, one of what we call the minor prophets. And I will just tell you, I have been so excited as I've been preparing this this week, and it worries me just a little bit because I can be a bit of a history nerd, and so I will try not to just be completely nerdy about all the history, but I, I do think there's some, some important stuff that's happening uh, historically in the Scripture for us here. Last week, Mike was teaching us out of Jonah. Mike was teaching us out of Jonah, and about the same time there were other prophets that were living in the land. Amos was one. Amos is a couple of books after uh, Hosea, and Hosea was at the same time too. He was about 200 years after the northern and the southern kingdom of Israel split. You might remember just a couple of weeks ago, we watched a video about the book of Kings, right? We watched this video about the book of Kings, and uh, the, the, no, yeah, and, and so we, we saw that in Kings that after uh, Solomon died, that the, the kingdom was divided into two. We said Rehoboam, Solomon's son, continued to be ruling over the southern part, down here, Judah. And then uh, another guy, Jeroboam, took ten of those tribes and went to the... They didn't go to the north. They just were split off and they were, they were uh, in the north. They were the northern kingdom of uh, Israel at that point. So it was Judah in the south and then Israel in the north. And then the video also told us that Israel in the north had a line of kings, 20 of them, and they were all evil. They were all evil. They all did the wrong thing. The, then the, the southern line had uh, around 20 as well, and they were sort of split. I think it said there were seven or eight that were actually decent. I know that you can't read this slide, but here's what I want to show you on this one out of the video. We are right here. There's a guy named Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II, and we are just about to the place where Israel is going to be carried off into exile. So things have gone great for all these generations, and uh, then these guys come on the scene, uh, like Amos and Hosea, and they're, they're explaining, listen, if you don't stop it, God is going to tear you apart. And uh, unfortunately, the people don't really uh, listen, and uh, we're, I don't want to get too far ahead of the story, but... Uh, uh, destruction's coming, right? First with Assyria in the north, and then uh, with Babylon for the southern kingdom of Judah as well. So this morning, we are going to look at the first three chapters of Hosea, 
And then we're going to see about how is God dealing in this particular prophet's life. And then what God's doing in this person's life is then sort of a, a symbolic kind of thing that he's doing for uh, all of Israel. And so it ends up being this message of warning and judgment and destruction. And finally, because, uh, because God's at the center of this, restoration, right? So you have all these bad things and then restoration sort of comes at the, at the end. So I believe that God gives three pictures through Hosea in uh, chapter 1 and then chapter 2. If you just look at it, it's a longer chapter and it's a little bit more poetic, right? That's why the kind of the typeset is off is off a little bit differently. It's just because it's poetic. So the thing happens in chapter one. Basically, the same thing happens in chapter two in longer, more poetic form. And then the same thing is repeated again in chapter three in just about five verses there. So we'll look a little bit at chapter three as we go along. Here are the three pictures, okay? Here are the three pictures that uh, we see. First, a picture of love. And faithfulness, picture of love and faithfulness, a picture of judgment, secondly, and then a picture of restoration that happens at the end. So here's the first one, a picture of love and faithfulness. I'm going to read to you from Hosea 1. Uh, I tell you what, let's just read all of Hosea 1 because that's we're going to cover all of that and then we'll... Uh, we'll come back and break, uh, break it down a little bit again at the end, okay? So the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Biri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, and the king of, the king of Israel. So here's what, we're, here's what we're saying, basically, that when Hosea is working in that same time, down in the southern part in Judah, there are four different kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, those four people one succeeds another in the southern part. But in the, in the northern part, it's always Jeroboam II during his ministry, okay? So always Jeroboam II. So then verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 6, She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So what he's saying in these verses is judgment is coming for Israel in the top, but the Lord says I'm going to continue to have mercy on Judah, at least for a season. Verse 8, when she had, that's Gomer, when Gomer had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, call his name not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Let me pray for you, okay? Father, we 
uh, pray and that uh, ask that as we look at your word, that Father, you would open our hearts and our minds and just cause us to be fertile soil. Lord, the places that I would tend to run into my own opinion or especially into error, God, would you stop that before it starts? Would you allow me to decrease that you might increase? Would you speak through me, Lord, speak to me, change us because of what we hear and what we see in your word today? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the first thing is this, a picture of love and faithfulness that we see in uh, Hosea 1, verses 2 and 3. When the Lord said to, to Hosea, Go and take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, and she conceived and bore him a son. God calls Hosea to marry a prostitute and then start a family, right? Hosea... Uh, has been loving his wife and they're having these children together and she responds in chapter 2 in this long poetic thing in chapter 2 by running off back to her lovers. Right? But if we're talking about Gomer, that means she's going back to work. When she's running back to these other men, she's going back to work. And so we would expect that Hosea, as a man of God, when his his wife returns to this evil lifestyle, that he would say, that's it, right? No more. And he would cut her off and he would push her away. We could expect that after betrayal there would be a divorce. But look at uh, chapter 3. You have to turn the page possibly, but look at what God tells him to do in chapter 3, verse 1. 1 through 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lectic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. So Hosea not only goes and gets his wife, not only goes and gets his wife from this other man, he has to pay the other man in order to get his wife back. And he brings Gomer home and he pledges his faithfulness. He says, I love you and I'm going to be yours and I want you to be mine. He's asking her to make a similar promise to him as well. And this is just a beautiful picture of love and grace and forgiveness. And forgiveness that we see. God's saying through this marriage to his people, Israel, This kingdom in the north, you have been unfaithful. You're like my wife and you've been unfaithful to me, but I still love you. Even though Israel uses, God blesses Israel with all of these things, say with like crops, then Israel takes her crops to Baal or to Asherah and she she gives up the, the, the products, the things that the Lord's blessed her with. She gives them to another God. Even we've gotten to the point in Israel where they're taking their own children and sacrificing them to another God. God's saying, you're taking the, the very things I bless you with and you're using them to worship another God, but I still love you. He's still pursuing them as his people. But here's the hard part. He does promise, though, that the sin will not go unpunished. And so Hosea gives this picture about an army. It's Assyria that's going to come and then they're going to destroy Israel. So though we have a picture of love and faithfulness, secondly, we have a picture of judgment. Let's pick up again in uh, 1.3. So he went and took Gomer, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. 
And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel, right? And so we have this uh, picture of what God's going to do because of Jezreel. And here's the, here's the thing that we saw in the video when we were talking about this, just to freshen you up a bit. Uh, it's probably been a month ago that I preached on Elijah. So Elijah was then uh, kind of uh, Lawan, right? He was coming against this king that was named Ahab. And Ahab, his wife, Jezebel. So Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel, they're sort of going back and forth. And so Elijah gets to the point we looked at in 1 Kings 19 where he says, I can't take it anymore. And God says, I want you to appoint Elisha. And then he says, uh, the person that escapes this person, Jehu's going to kill. The person that escapes Jehu, Elisha's going to kill. And so the Lord just promises that. Then he tells Elisha, which I think Sam preached about, and he tells Elisha, I want you to go and anoint Jehu to be the king. And so Elisha goes into Jehu in uh, 2 Kings 9 or 10 or something like that. He goes in and he gets Jehu alone and he anoints him as king and says, I want you to wipe out the house of Ahab. Right? God's already prophesied through his people that Ahab's going to be destroyed. And so he tells Jehu, you have to go and you have to kill Ahab. So Jehu, Jehu then goes and he kills all of Ahab's family, which is what the Lord said to do. Every, leave him where there's not a descendant left. And so he says, even, you see this about Jezebel, right? Where it says that she's never going to be buried and the dogs are going to lick up her blood. That's what, that's what happened through this whole process. But Jehu also sort of went a little beyond, and Jahab also killed the king of Judah. He killed everybody who knew Ahab. He went way beyond what God told him to do. He said, wipe out this house, and Jehu did wipe out that house, and then he wiped out a whole lot of other people in the valley of Jezreel. He just sheds all of this innocent blood that he was not supposed to shed. And Israel then gets on this downward spiral where king after king, they're just, when they come up, they just slaughter all these people that came before him. They just, they just, they go and they attack old people or they assassinate people. And Israel, by the time that Hosea is living and uh, ministering, there's just a bloodthirsty place where all these assassinations and murders are happening all the time. And God is saying to the house of Israel, I've had enough of this. This stops. And he says, I'm going to break the kingdom of Israel, I'm going to tear you people apart. Then, look in verse uh, 6. She again conceives and bears a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no mercy. I will have mercy on the house of Israel no more to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them. Then verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So Hosea and Gomer have these three kids, and their names all are a testimony against Israel. Jezreel, no mercy, and not my people. And we can see in chapters 2 and 3 that the anger that's poured out on Israel because of their sin and all this consequence that happens in Gomer's life and the consequence that happens for the nation of Israel too. They, she had turned her back on Hosea the same way Israel turned their back on God. And there was consequence for sin. Jezreel is a word in Hebrew that sounds a bit like Israel. Jezreel and Israel. So previously God had looked at his people and called them Israel because he was saying God strives with them. God walks with them. And now he was changing their name to Jezreel, which means God scatters. He's telling them, you people are going to be pulled up out of the ground here and you're going to be cast abroad. You're going to be scattered. We're not even going to be together. God was walking away with them or walking away from them. He was 
scattering them out. And then he also says that the objects of his mercy are from now on going to be called no mercy. The people whose very identity as a nation had been the people of God. God is saying, you're not my people anymore. You're not my people anymore. He abandons them at least for a season. And then we see this beautiful picture of restoration in um, 1, 10, and 11. Where it says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. In uh, chapter 3, verse 5, it, it ends like this. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to, to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. So you have this promise in chapters 1 and in chapter 3 that God's going to bring about restoration. Sin brings judgment. And after judgment should come repentance. And after repentance comes restoration. So chapter 1 ends with this promise. I just really, this is the place where I thought that I was so excited to talk about Hosea because it's to me such a clear picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. Because this place in verses 10 and 11 is when, when God's saying the people, like these people, right, that have been, uh, where are we, been split apart. God says, you're going to come together again and you're going to have one king and you're going to have one king who's going to unite them and they are going to be great in that land again. Chapter 2 Let me just read to you chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Starting in verse 18. Because, right, this is is where Christ starts to come into this. You really get to see it. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land." And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, he shall say, you are my God. So we have this picture starting in chapter 2, verse 18, of a new covenant, this new promise that's coming because uh, Christ is coming, right? He's going to be the one true king to bring them together in a kingdom of righteousness. Listen how it says, righteousness and justice and steadfast love, and mercy, and faithfulness. That's what the kingdom is going to be like when Christ brings it together. And God even redeems these names of uh, Hosea's children because he had said to uh, Jezreel, I'm going to scatter you, but that's the same idea of when we we want to plant something, we scatter the seed, right? So God says, I've uprooted you from here and I'm throwing you out there, but he says, there's coming a day then when I'm going to sow you again in Israel. 
You're going away, but I'm going to bring you back and I am going to replant you in the land that I promised to give you. And when he says to them that you're not going to receive mercy, now he's saying, I'm going to give you mercy. And the people that were saying, you're not mine, I'm going to look at them and say, you are mine. You're mine. Just a beautiful picture for me about, uh, about what Jesus is going to do in our future. So, what do we do in the light of this passage, right? I mean, we, we read something like this in the, some Old Testament prophet, and you think, surely not, God's not calling me to marry a prostitute. Like, what am I supposed to do about that? Am I supposed to give my, my kids names that are constantly reminding me of God's judgment? Right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine your kid, you have to, God says, name that kid no mercy. No mercy, right? And so every time when it's, hey, no, no mercy, right? It's time to eat. It's this constant reminder that, that God is saying to his people, I'm not going to have mercy on you anymore, right? Hosea has to live with this in and out like a hundred times a day, right? You're not, you're not my people. Come here, you're not my people, right? What a tough sort of thing. And we're not supposed to do that, I, I don't think. Uh, so what does it mean? How are we supposed to obey? Let me show you three quick things and we'll, we'll be finished, okay? First, I want you to notice the faithfulness of God all through today's text. If you want to turn with me to 2 Timothy. I mean, we tend to look at someone, God's doing something hard and we think He's not being faithful, right? Um, and for parents, we recognize that sometimes we do things that seem hard to our kids that um, really is for their, it's for their best interest, right? Hudson's, Hudson's been down with the flu this week, and so he got this medicine, and it just tastes horrible. I mean, he's, Hudson's making everyone in the house taste it. Taste, just taste it. Why do you make me take it? Taste it, right? He just keeps saying that, and I'm like, I'll taste it. And then I think, it tastes like medicine, so just suck it up and take it. It's medicine. You have to take it. And so uh, as a parent, if we love them, we give them the shots that they need, right? We give them the, the punishment that they need. They give them the, Nicole doesn't want to hear this. You, you give them the difficulty, th- the things that f- help forge their character, right? But I forget that when God's dealing with me like a child, like his son, man, I, t- I totally throw my experience as a father out the window. And I say, why are you doing this to me? Don't make me take this medicine. I hate it. It's so gross. So notice the faithfulness of God through today's text. And we're in 2 Timothy 2, 11. 2 Timothy 2, 11. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. Right? That's what gets Israel thrown into exile. But verse 13. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. God, being unfaithful to us, would somehow require Him changing His very character. God has to stop being God for Him to be unfaithful to us. And so you might look at your life and and you might just be filled with shame for the things that you've done, right? The way that you've lived and the sin you've committed. But I'm telling you that Jesus... Jesus is willing to forgive you. God is willing to view you through your... Through, he's willing to view you and your sin through the lens of Jesus, right? I have my reading glasses that I'm off and on, off and on, off and on, right? Because if I have them off, I can't read 
my Bible at all. And when I have them on, I can see who you are, but that's about all I can do. And so I can't see specifically who you are, right? That's the idea that we have when our sin is there and God hates our sin and it separates us from him. But when he views us through the lens of Christ, he says, this is my son. This is my daughter. I love this one. This one's redeemed. This one's clean, right? What a beautiful thing. God is faithful to view me and to view you and to view our sin through the lens of Jesus. He's willing to forgive you and to make you his if we are willing to repent and then confess him as our Lord. Christ is my Lord. Is this okay for me to do? Christ is my Lord. Answer that. Is that okay for you to do? Whatever it happens to be. If Christ is your Lord, is that okay for you to do? And you, you work with that through the Holy Spirit with that. In Luke's gospel, we have the story of Peter's denial. It's in uh, Luke 22, I think. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Satan has demanded to sift you. When you come again, then I want you to strengthen your brothers. So Jesus is saying, Satan wants you, Peter. You are going to fail the test, and then I'm going to restore you. And so when I restore you, Peter, I want you to, I want you to encourage your brothers. And Peter's response, like most of us, is, oh, I will never deny you. Right? Jesus has already promised him, you're going to fail. You're going to be tested, and you're going to fail, and I'm going to restore you. And Peter says, I won't fail. Right? He's already told him you're going to fail. You're going to fail. And so we have this picture that not only will we fail, but that Christ is willing to forgive us even after we fail. Jesus is willing to forgive Peter's betrayal, and he's willing to forgive your betrayal as well. God is faithful. We stumble and we stumble and Jesus still loves us. He is willing to forgive us. That's how good God is to us. So when we have these stories all through the Bible, I think the point is to notice how God's dealt faithfully with his people. And then for us to say, God's always dealt faithfully with his people. I'm God's person. Therefore, God will deal faithfully with me. God's going to do That's what these stories, I think, are about. They're pointing us to something bigger than just the story, just bigger than ourselves. So let these stories like Hosea build in you the faith that Jesus will forgive you when you come to him. So that's the first thing. How do we obey? We notice God's faithful. Here's the second thing. Deal with the Bible in context. Because it can seem just harsh, right? That God is promising, listen, Assyria is going to come and they are going to wipe you out. I mean, there are places in the... They would have these sieges, right? That did just, Assyria didn't just come one night and wipe Israel out. This took a long time. They'd have sieges and people would be locked in cities and they would be starving to death. Right? There's a, there's a story uh, in the, in, uh, it's in 2 Kings maybe 7, but uh, I can check that for you later if you want, where, where two ladies agree together to kill and eat their own children. They're so hungry. They say, let's, let's kill, we'll, tonight we'll kill and eat my son, and then tomorrow we'll kill and eat your son. And the second lady ends up hiding her son and taking him away. But that's the place where they are. This is a horrible kind of thing that happens, and it goes on for decades. And we look sometimes at what God's doing and we say, not fair, not fair. And so we have to view all of this kind of in context of what is happening. God is doing something amazing. He is bringing on them the wickedness that they have been practicing, right? They've been all this sin, and when God brings judgment, they deserve the judgment. They deserve it because of how they've been living. But He is also in these stories, working a deliverance that is so amazing, he says it will cause the people to redefine the most important event in their history. 
right? This is, I don't know what, where, like in your home country, what's like the most important event in history? But God's saying to them, this thing that I'm doing now is going to become the most important event. You're not going to be talking about Egypt and Pharaoh and the Red Sea anymore. We're going to be talking about this deliverance that I'm about to do when you're coming out of Assyria or out of Babylon in the future. So uh, Hosea and these prophets, and uh, especially in this period, are really like the midway point on this bridge. God made all these promises in Genesis that are ultimately going to be fulfilled in Jesus, and they're on their way to that. But they're in the middle, and it is not a pleasant place to be for them in the middle. God's, but, God's, but God's moving history toward something. So God made these promises, right, in Genesis that are, are going to reach their fulfillment in Jesus. God made a covenant early on with Abraham. He said, you're going to be my people. And then God delivers the people from Egypt. And then God gives them a promised land that is theirs. This is going to be their land. And God gives them a king. And all of these things are pointers towards something that God really wants to do, this ultimate reality that's going to be in Jesus. Because they had a king before, but God's going to give them a better king. They had a land before, but they have a better land that's coming. They have a deliverance before, but they have a better deliverance coming. They have a better covenant coming. That's what he's saying in Hosea 2.18. There's a better covenant coming. And this seems like a low point, but this is actually this reminder that God's moving all of this towards something. It's not just what's happening in their immediate midst. So we uh, remember God's faithfulness and we deal with the whole Bible in context, right? This big picture thing of what God's doing. Then the last thing is this. We remember that in this story, the main character is God. It's not Hosea, it's not Gomer, it's not Israel, it's not, it's God. And the main character in your story and in my story is also God. There's a song that I love to listen to, I think it's Sovereign Grace Music, it's called All I Have Is Christ. And one of the verses starts out this, Oh Father, use my ransomed life in any way that you choose. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way that you choose. Whatever you want to do with me, God, I'm okay with you doing it. And I think that's the goal for our lives as believers, that we abandon ourselves to this perfect plan of God. If you look through these prophets, Old Testament, the, the kind of the major ones and the minor ones, there's, I don't think, that many things that are harder that God asks people to do. I mean, He does ask the prophets to do some things, I think, a bit harder, but... God sends Hosea to marry this prostitute, right? Hosea works for 25 years warning the people, and no one listens, right? In the end, Assyria still comes, and they're still wiped out. No one listens. But this is what's amazing to me. 2,800 years later, we're standing here talking about Hosea, right? That, in the midst of that, I don't want God dealing with me like that in the midst of that, but if I can be a beacon of God's grace that flashes for 2,800 years, I guess I'm, I need to be okay with that, right? We don't know a lot about Hosea. We're not too fascinated with his life and what he looked like and how he lived and all those kind of things. But we're able to look back through this text and say, God did something in that man's life. And it's still testifying to us today. So we have to ask ourselves, would we rather have an easy life or a useful life? An easy life or the useful life? 
Would we rather have the five C's, right? The big Singapore five C's. So we want our car and our credit card and our condo and our cash and our country club. Or we want a huge bank account. Do we want to build a, a name for ourselves in business? Is that what we're really supposed to be about? All these things that are ultimately going to be wiped away. Here's the question. Are you willing to give God the freedom to use your life however he sees fit? Are you willing to let him be the main character in your story? God is writing his story across history, and I think he wants to use you. And so are you willing to allow him to use you? First, the call is this. Become a child of God. So if you've not personally surrendered your heart, then I would say surrender your heart and come to Christ and be his. And then secondly, abandon yourself and say, Lord, I'm going to be an instrument that you can use no matter what. No matter what. Right? I, I don't know about you, but I have plenty of times the last few years where I just I come back and say, Lord, if this is the way that you intend to use my life, at least make me satisfied with it. Because I'm not satisfied with how God's using my life at this point. I don't mind. I don't mind, Lord. If you want me to be this John the Baptist kind of person that lives out their life, that calls out the people, that they don't listen, and then ultimately John has his head chopped off, Lord, if you're going to use me like that, at least let me be satisfied with it. right? And let me, be, let me be sure that I'm doing the thing that you want me to do. Be his child. And then secondly, be his instrument to proclaim his glory to the world. So here's what uh, we're doing as we close. We're coming to the Lord's table. right? As we come to the Lord's table, let's just take a minute to reflect on our lives. It's really dangerous, but I want you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to search you and then give him the freedom. Lord, is there anything in my life that is out of place? Is there some place that I'm holding back trying to be in control? Because you're trying to be in control is complete and total idolatry. The moment that you decide you know better about a situation than God does, you've elevated yourself above him, it's idolatry. You may as well be bowing down before a golden calf. So ask the Lord to search you and show you anything that he would like to change. And then, if God puts his finger on something, right? If you just think, man, my heart's beating fast. I can't get this out of my mind over the, the next couple of days. God's probably really dealing with you, convicting you about getting that out of your life. And so then repent, trusting in his power to cleanse you. So let me just uh, give you a couple of minutes. Mike's going to come. And we're going to have uh, a chance for you to um, just to ask the Lord to search you.